Yeah, good morning, you guys. How many have found a new habit being with God this week as we went through and, and did the being week in our first set of challenges? Have you guys read scripture more? Have you spent more time in prayer? Have you taken more of a break? No, that was a challenge for me this week to dial back and to rest a little more and to stop doing so much stuff and focus on time with God. I don't know about you, but this has been a blessing to me to just sit back and say, you know, what is it, God, I can be with you? And God reminds me that I'm his kid. I'm his child. And the time we spend together is as precious to him as is the time we spend together with our parents and with our children. Would you guys agree? And being with God gives us the opportunity to take a look at that. Well, we are in this week that deals with forgiving. And forgiving is the banner characteristic of Christianity. Let me say that again. Forgiving is the banner characteristic of Christianity. And yet, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the world around us doesn't necessarily see us forgiving as freely, perhaps, as we could. And so what we're going to talk about today is the pragmatics, the hows of forgiving, and put a little bit of history behind that, a little bit of Bible story behind it, a little bit of time with Jesus on that topic. Now, we've been talking about these five different groups of characteristics that, that describe Jesus' behaviors, the idea of, of being with God and forgiving, as we said a minute ago, and then giving and going and serving. All these ideas are kind of like pots that the different sayings of Jesus are filled into so that we can characterize them. And focusing on forgiving this morning, I just want to share a forgiveness experience with you that I had a few weeks ago. In fact, if we take a look at, uh, at the scripture here in a minute, it'll shed some light on this idea. So a few weeks ago, we were getting done with one kid's activity and moving on to another kid's activity. If you have kids in the room, especially little ones, you know that your life revolves around not only your work and trying to take care of your household, but also moving from one kid activity to the next. In fact, if you got paid to do that, you'd probably be a millionaire, right? Because the kids' activities are, they're all around us, and they give us all these opportunities to go to things and for the kids to grow and to become what God wants them to be, right? But the kids' activities keep us busy. So we were coming from one kid's activity, headed home at the end of a busy day, and we got a text from our 15-year-old that he needed something to eat, so we decided to stop by McDonald's on the way home. And you guys know how this goes. You roll up to the, you know, the, the little thing where you give your order, and then the person in there in a you know, squawky voice says, is that all? You know, and then you move forward, and you're supposed to go up to the first window and pay, right? That's how the system works, is you go up to the first window and pay for your food, and then what happens next? Then you go to the second window, and what happens then? Then you get your food, you know, and you check the bag, and you ask for your napkins, and you ask for your spork, you know, and you ask for your salt and pepper and all that cool stuff, right? So, so I was driving, and, and, you know, we were headed home at the end of a long day. I was going to get Gabe some chicken nuggets and some fries or whatever it is, a shake or whatever it is he wanted, smoothie. And I pull up to the first window, and I look in, and the window is not open. There's a guy in front of the cash register, like, pulling his cash out and putting it in the cash register. So, okay, so I was like, I'm going to be nice, and I'm just going to burn on by the first window and go on down to the second window and give him another minute to get all his cash out, right? So when I did that, 
And I stepped on the gas and I blew on past the first window. Clearly, he wasn't ready to receive me, right? So I didn't want to inconvenience him, right? And stand there and wait, you know, knock on the window, come on, come on, you know, that kind of thing. So I went down to the second window. And by that time, the system had broken down and everybody got confused because they assumed that I had already paid at the first window. So they were getting ready to give me the food of the person who was behind us in line. And they didn't know that I had not paid at the first window. So I offered two or three times, hey, I still need to pay you. But they were confused because the system was, you're supposed to go where to pay? The first window. And yet the first window wasn't open and the guy wasn't ready. Maybe it was me just being impatient. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that was the case, right? Or maybe it was me you know, try, in a veiled attempt to try to be kind to him since he wasn't ready. But the system got all messed up, and I tried to pay them at the second window, and they got all confused, and they ended up just giving me my food for free. So Gabe got his dinner for free that night, and I was like, are you sure? Because I can pay. I had the credit card right in my hand and everything, you know. And at this point, I look over at Heather, and I get this look like, you're such an idiot. <laughs> you're supposed to pay at the first window, not the second window. It's not okay for you to try to pay at the second window because there's a system to this thing. And so when we're dealing with the idea of sin and forgiveness, there is a way that sin is forgiven in the eyes of God, and there's a way that is not. There's a way that sin is forgiven in the eyes of God, and then there's a way that's not. If you try to get your sins forgiven by doing good works and by doing better things, the Bible provides for us very clearly that's not enough. It's like rolling up to the second window at McDonald's and trying to pay after you blew through the first window because the system and the function of the system has broken down. And yet in the church these days, we still believe that there's some part of us that gets to get our sins forgiven by how good we are. And yet Jesus says it, that doesn't work. And he demonstrates it so beautifully with this story in the scripture. I want to just share this with you. This is in John chapter 8 and verse 2. By the way... If you're a Bible reader, if you started a habit of reading the Bible this week, you crack open the Bible to John chapter 8. This whole section is in italics in some versions. Now, why is that? Because in some versions of the Bible, this whole section was added into the scripture later. Now, why is that? We're not totally sure, but we think it might be because it is such a controversial story. I want to read this for you. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, let's do a quick check-in. Why was Jesus there? What was he there to do? He was there to teach, right? He went into the temple courts, and he was there with an agenda. His plan for the day was to go in and teach, as was the thing he did, as was custom, right? And when that happened, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So Jesus' agenda was interrupted. Jesus had an agenda, and there was an interruption that occurred. Now think about for that for a second. You have an agenda for your day, and you're all set to go, and you're all set to do your stuff. And then all of a sudden, something comes along and interrupts your agenda. There are times when those interruptions, believe it or not, are from God. Jesus did not freak out when they brought him a woman caught in adultery. He did not pull his phone to see if he could fit her in for five or ten minutes into his agenda. He was simply there to teach, but he allowed for that interruption to occur because he knew that God was up to something. Now, let's dial this back for a second. 
A woman caught in adultery. What is adultery? At this church, we're truthful. We say stuff like it is. What is adultery? People who are sleeping together who are not what? Who are not married or, or who are married to other people with whom they should not be doing things like this. Right? So there was a woman who was caught in the act. Now think about that. What had to happen in order for her to be caught in the act? She was in the middle of the act and somebody came in and caught her. And from that situation took her out of bed, whether she was clothed or not, we don't know, and brought her in front of all the people in the temple courts. Now imagine if that happened to you or someone you know. Imagine the state of humility that would be. And in all the pictures, if you Google pictures of, you know, Jesus and the adult woman caught in adultery, you see these images that you look up on Google. You see these images of these, this woman on the ground in a crumpled heap and then Jesus kind of writing in the dirt with his finger, right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says they stood her in front of the crowd as if she were on trial. Now, look at what it says after that. The scripture says they brought this woman in caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group, verse 4, and said to Jesus, catch this, said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So in other words, we saw her committing the crime. Okay, how about that? Snuck in, saw her doing the deed. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, you might remember the story about Jesus being approached by these same people, these teachers of the law, with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. Do you remember the story? And how does Jesus solve it? Jesus asks for a coin and then says, whose inscription and whose picture do you see on the coin? Do you remember this story? And they say it's Caesar's. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what did he say next? Give to God what is God's. He didn't fall into the trap they were setting for him. And the scripture calls this out in verse 6 and says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, what I want to bring to your attention with this scripture is a very cool nuance to this. I'm going to submit to you this morning that the actual crime of adultery that the woman was committing was not the thing the Pharisees really cared about. They were using that circumstance in that situation. And some theologians even guess that maybe they even somehow set it up. They might have set up the situation and maybe put her together with somebody else's husband so that this could occur so that they could test Jesus. And here's the reason why. Back then, the Israelites were held captive in their own places of domicile, the places that they dwell by the Romans. The Romans were an occupying power who had conquered their world around them. And even though the Jewish law still held true and the Jews still practiced their law, before they were going to commit a capital punishment um, or arrangement, they were going to take somebody and try them and, and send them off to death according to the Jewish law, they had to have somebody's permission who was the Roman uh, governor or procurator of that region. So if they took somebody and by their law stoned them to death or, or did anything to uh, deal with the crime according to the Jewish law, they had to get permission from the Romans because the Romans were occupying them and had military oversight and command. It was a state of martial law for them. So look at what Jesus' trouble is becoming. 
They're posing another one of these little tricksy questions for him, just like the coin with the inscription of Caesar and the picture of Caesar. Here's the idea. If Jesus had said yes, stone her, if Jesus had said yes, stone her, he would have been acting in the place of the Roman governor and he would have been breaking Roman law. If Jesus had said, no, don't stone her, then he would have been breaking whose law? The Jewish law. And they would have had a reason to do what? Accuse him for breaking the law. So whether he answered yes or no, what was going to happen to Jesus? Whether he answered yes or no, with that woman there standing in front of the whole crowd, and with the whole crowd of people who were pointing the finger at her, accusing her of doing wrong, and taking it on the word of the people who caught her in the act, whether they did that or not was not the point. The point was it was a trap. It was a trap for Jesus. Now look, the first lesson of all for today as we focus on forgiving is you cannot trick Jesus. You cannot trap Jesus. Jesus is smarter. Jesus is better. Jesus is gooder. Jesus is holier. Jesus is perfecter. Jesus is timelier. Jesus is powerfuler. <laughs> you cannot trick Jesus. And people all the time, even in these days and times, try to trick Jesus, try to, you know, push Jesus out of the picture and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad person right now, but I'm going to do gooder and I'm going to do better stuff. And when I do better stuff, I'm going to be acceptable to God. And God comes along and just does a face palm. Why? Because you can't trick him into thinking that you're perfect and holy and forgiven. You cannot trick Jesus. So Jesus' answer is perfect. I love this in the scripture. Let me just read this for you. Um, the Bible says in verse 6, they were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They didn't even care about that poor woman standing there half naked in front of the whole crowd with football-sized rocks in their hands. Can you throw a football? Some of you guys in here can throw good, perfect spirals with a football, right? Imagine a rock the size of a football hitting you. Somebody throwing that at you, at your head. Imagine how much that would hurt, right? Here's this woman, for all intents and purposes, she thinks she's getting ready to receive this punishment, but she's not even the point of the situation. They're trying to trap Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Bible says Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, what is it Jesus is trying to communicate to the teachers of the law right now? He's not standing beside the half-naked woman. He's not standing there giving them his full attention. What is Jesus doing? He's starting to write on the ground with his finger. And the Bible says, verse 7, John chapter 8, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he went right back down to writing in the dirt. And then the Bible says this, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, perhaps the ones with the most sins went away first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. 
Now, why would Jesus be stooping down, riding in the dirt with this drama going on? First of all, you can't trick Jesus. You can't trick him. He will not be put into a bind by human beings. He was simply down in the dirt drawing something. Now, we don't know what he was drawing. Theologians guess that he was writing the names of the guys in the crowd with the football-sized rocks in their hands and the sins that they had committed. You know, that's one interesting scenario. There are other people that think he was just doodling like kids do in the dirt. There are other people who guess that maybe he was writing down um, the, the sins of the woman who was standing there accused. Maybe he was drawing hearts. We have no idea what Jesus was writing. But the point is true, and the point is timeless. He was not going to be held captive and not going to be trapped by the crowd who was accusing the woman. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know what the word Satan means? Do you know what the word devil means? We are trivializing the concept of Satan these days. As Satan is like this guy in this red jumpsuit with little horns and a pitchfork and a, a pointy tail, right? The word Satan means accuser or one who slanders. The chief work of the devil, the chief work of Satan is to sow accusation. And what that means for us is that when we fall captive as Christ followers to a life that has in it the kind of judgment that renders itself to accusing another person of sin without taking inventory of our own selves first, then we are trying to sit in the place of who? Of God. And we are falling into the trap of the evil one whose name even means accuser. You see, the currency of the evil one in his kingdom his temporary place is to accuse other people before God. God, look at this person over here and look at what they're doing. You should not love them. You should not save them. You should not let them into your kingdom. And how does Jesus respond to that? Jesus writes in the dirt with his finger. And we don't even know what he was writing. But he simply throws it back to the devil. He throws it back in Satan's lap and says, there is nothing that can separate my people from the love of God. There is no sin. There is no failure. There is no weakness. There is no temptation. There is no all-out breaking of God's command that can keep these people from the love of God. The love of God is there for them through who? Through Jesus. And Jesus' job until the end of times is to continue to throw that message back in the face of the accuser. Throw it back. Throw it back. Throw it back. The question for you and for me today is, which of these two sides are we going to play on? Are we going to play on the side that tries to accuse and tries to judge and tries to point the finger at someone else who has sinned worse than we have? Are we going to play on the side of the person 
who says there's nothing that can keep the love of God from pouring and washing and cleansing over this person that I love. Even a person that's close to us, that we love, who hurts us, who does something to us that should be unforgivable. That is forgivable. And we can forgive them. Not because we feel like it, but because who is working in us? The one who writes in the dirt when the crowd accuses. And they don't even know that they're participating in the chief activity of the one who thinks he's God instead of the one true living God. Satan, whose name is not a joke, folks. It is accuser. That is what that name means. And when we fall privy to his work, when we fall privy to his work, we are missing the mark of what Christ has carved out for us. Take a look at what Jesus says. These are red letters in Matthew 11 and 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Now, you might have heard and read this scripture as a part of last week's challenges. There's a part of this that's really important to being with God. Jesus says, take all of life's burdens and put them in perspective and come to me. And in me, what are you going to find? Rest. Now, look at what the world tries to tell you about Jesus. Now, listen to this. The world tries to tell you that you come to Jesus and you bring what? Your work. The stuff you have to do to be perfect and right, right? Does Jesus say that? No. He doesn't say that anywhere. He just says, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened by what? By sin and its consequences, its effects. Come to me with all that junk. And then what does it say? I'll make you work harder so you can overcome all that junk? No. What does it say? It's very clear. You will find what? You will find rest. You will find a way to be with God without you having to earn it. Does that make sense? And then it says this, and this is for today. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And this is the zinger for today. Verse 30. Matthew chapter 11, verse 30 says this. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what is he talking about there? That burden that he's talking about is the burden of Jesus. What is the burden of Jesus? The burden of Jesus is forgiveness. The same Jesus who hung on the cross. And as the religious leaders were passing by and accusing him, what did he say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, right? The burden of Jesus is forgiveness. But how does he characterize this burden? Does he characterize the burden the same way the burden of your sin is? Is the burden of forgiveness the same as the burden of sin? No. Jesus says that it is easy and it is light. Have you ever carried something that should have been painful and heavy but wasn't? Like a baby? Think about that. A baby is a burden to carry, isn't it? But do you think of it as a burden? No. Why? Because it's the baby you love. It's the child you love. With following Jesus comes the responsibility. And this is where sometimes as Christians, we step away from the responsibility and say, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God forgives us, God forgives us, God forgives us. And we forget about the second part. The part B is 
that God gives us a responsibility to turn that forgiveness around and point it at who? Those who sin against us or those who sin in our uh, sphere of influence and we see it happening. God gives us the glorious, the beautiful burden, the light burden of following him in forgiveness. It's the idea of this. We carry this burden. I put that in quotes because it really doesn't become a burden, not like our sin was. It's simply a responsibility. We carry with us that responsibility and the great joy of the gospel, the good news that everyone has access to the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people are in everyone? Everyone, even the ones who sin against us. And the sin that they have against us is not eternal. It is temporary. Yet the forgiveness that we portray to them because of the Jesus we follow, how long does that last? For eternity. The impact is eternal. And each one of us, from the littlest of children all the way up to the oldest of adults, has this beautiful, awesome responsibility and joy. Now, forgiving other people doesn't get you into heaven, does it? What gets you into heaven? Jesus does. And when we come into faith and we follow Jesus, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God gives us the opportunity and the keys and the power to forgive other people their sins. Even before they know they sin, or in spite of the fact that they sin. Here's the idea. The idea is, as one ancient theologian said, we either are or have been or may be what he is. That other person we're trying to forgive. Think about the men who were getting ready to throw football-sized stones at a half-naked woman caught in an, an overtly blatant act of sin. The reason they could not fulfill what they wanted to do and carry it to completion is because they carried what themselves? The same stuff. Before God, they stood as condemned as she stood before them, vulnerable, naked, and completely guilty. And yet, the same Jesus who died for her, died for them too. And then did what? Rose again from the grave. So what is it Jesus was writing in the dirt? We don't know. Maybe he was writing his name to remember that he had conquered sin and death and that he claimed this earth on which we walk and that he claimed the hearts of all those that he died for that they belong to him. We don't know what he was writing, but we know this. Jesus won't be trapped. He won't be tricked. And he will not do any less than completely overcome the sin of all people who come to him and find what? Rest. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you so much for writing in the dirt. Thank you for leaving an element of mystery out there, Jesus. Say, we don't know what you were writing, 
And really, it probably doesn't even matter because what you were saying to us is you're not worried about it. You're not worried about a person who stands condemned in front of other people. Why? Because we all stand condemned in front of our Father God. And yet you are the one who came and relieved us of that burden, the burden of sin, and gave us instead an, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, the opportunity to forgive, not with our own power, but with yours. Jesus, I admit before you, there are times when I hold the stone. There are times when I point the finger. There are times when I feel like that woman standing there in front of the crowd. And no matter which space I feel like I occupy, no matter which label I think I carry, I know that you are there riding in the dirt and yet claiming that dirt and the dirt I'm made of for your greatness and your glory. Remind me of that in that moment when I am tempted to give up. Remind me of how powerful and amazing you are and how much love you have for each of us. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen.